Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So you want to increase the number of deer that are on the property you hunt, but you don't have a lot of money to spend. On this episode, I'm going to walk you through the extremely cheap process that I used to increase the number of deer on the property that I hunt by 660% from one season to the next. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the New Hunter's Guide, the podcast helping new hunters get started and helping active hunters learn new things. I'm your host, George Kanidis, and today I'm going to talk to you about a one-year case study that I did on one of the properties that I hunt where I did a series of steps and habitat improvements using very little money to increase the number of deer by six over 660%. Now, the way that I measured this was I used the same trail camera in the same spot on the same trail from the same time period, same exact number of days for a six-week period from one year to the next year. Now, you might say, well, why didn't you use more than six weeks? Well, because the first year I took the camera down and moved it and I uh, hadn't planned on doing a case study. So I've got six weeks of data starting in uh, the early hunting season, running right up near the beginning of the pre-rut. And I've got, uh, like I said, same camera in the exact same location on the exact same trail. Looking at, uh, and we're not talking about on a food plot or something like that. This is on a trail that runs around the property and... I want to walk you through the process that I use to transform the number of deer on this property. So first I need to describe the property. And of course, you know, individual results may vary, right? I mean, no two properties are the same. This process may not even make sense to use on every property. So glean what you can, but this is the case study. So this property that I hunt on, it's a small property and there's not a lot of land. It's about 12 acres. And not all of it is huntable. And more than that, it is an odd shape of land. It's kind of like an hourglass. Like a cross between an S shape and an hourglass shape. Um, one side of the property borders the road and there's some houses there. So you can't hunt there. The other side of the property, uh, there is a house on it. So I estimate there to be maybe five acres of huntable land on this property. However, 
The huntable land is not the only thing that matters. You need to use all of the land that you can in order to, to you know, work on deer habitat and uh, whatever you can do to encourage deer to be there. So I've done things in the part of the land that I can't really hunt, knowing that, you know, we need to get deer on this property, whatever we can do, get them moving around the property, that's very important, and uh, get them in front of the areas that I can hunt, as well as shelter them from people hunting on nearby properties in order to give them more of a sporting chance to survive the hunting season. So all these factors went into effect. Now, this property, it is, there are some serious hills on the one side. The other side's a little flatter, but it's just basically lesser hills. So there's some terrain. And what I did was I decided early on that I needed to create some trails. I wanted to create a trail that basically ran not a complete circle around the property because it's almost impossible to do that based on some of the terrain features and uh, just based on the shape of the property that wasn't quite reasonable but I, I did a trail that ran around the larger portion of the property almost to the borders um, while I was cutting the trail I discovered some border pins and realized I had been on the other side of the border by a few feet but you wouldn't, there's no way you could even know that had you not cut that trail and found those pins. But nonetheless, I started and the way I cut this trail was with a weed whacker and a swing blade. Whatever I couldn't get through with the weed whacker, I used the swing blade. And when I say a swing blade, I'm talking about it basically looks kind of like a hockey stick. But instead of there being a vertical blade, there is a horizontal steel blade that's great for taking down brush and thick weeds and jaggers and uh, multi-floral rose, thorn, bush, garbage, all of that stuff. And then of course I use some heavy duty pruning shears. So with those three tools, I cut a trail. Now it didn't, you know, having better tools would have made it go a lot faster. If you had better tools, if you had a brush hog, then great. Uh, and at one point I had to employ a little handsaw just because there were some things I couldn't get through. When I say hands, I mean like a 10 inch saw. That's all I had. So that's what I used. Didn't want to spend money on another saw because this was a budget operation. Not because I wanted to do a budget case study, but because I just didn't have money in the budget. This was not something I did on the cheap just because I wanted to teach you to do something cheap. I did it on the cheap because I just did not have the funds. So... We begin with this trail, and a lot of this property is just thick, nasty garbage. Just those multi-floral, jagger rose things, and all kinds of garbage. And it's not even the good kinds of cover and garbage. They give deer cover in the winter. Most of this stuff is uh, has a very low cover value when it comes to the winter, and once you get through the, the fall season. So it's... It's kind of like a, a worst of both worlds kind of thing, right? It's just garbage that you can't get through it in the summer, and it doesn't even help the deer make it through the winter. So, you know, I was just like, all right, we're going we're gonna to cut this trail. So I began by the camera that I'm telling you about that I had up the year before, and I began cutting a trail, 
And, you know, it's it's kind of like an oval, but it winds and meanders because I was following basically the path of least resistance, um, the most likely natural deer trails, and just whatever areas I physically had the strength and tools to cut through. So I cut through, you know, all the way around this property. I didn't measure the total trail. I probably should have done that before this episode, at least estimate it with my maps app. But we're not talking miles, you know, it's where we cut a trail around about eight acres of the property, right? A perimeter trail. And like I said, it meanders through. So I cut this trail and I had started cutting it the year before I cut a, a smaller portion. And what I learned was, you know, it took me, oh, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe to a dozen Friday afternoons. In the summer, I was able to leave work at noon, and so I just went there and worked until worked until dinner time, and couldn't have worked much more because you just ran out of gas physically. But using my weed whacker and my swing blade and my pruning shears and my ten-inch saw, I just cut this trail all the way around the property. Now that, in and of itself, I don't think um, did a whole lot. Now, what it did do is it provided funnel areas and funnel opportunities for to set up stands to set up places to hunt, right? So you made it easier for deer to go through certain areas on certain trails so they would focus their movement along those trails. So if you wanted to set up a stand or a blind, then you could do that. But I don't don't know that that in and of itself... um, drew more deer to the property. It may have. I would have had to do just that and then research that for a year to figure it out. And I wasn't willing to move that slow. So, but I cut this trail all the way around and the trail did a couple things. It focused deer movement. It also gave me the ability to access the whole property. I was able to get into places I could never get into before. So that helps with still hunting, which I don't do much on this property because it's so small. Uh, But it helps even more with turkey hunting, which is uh, another part of the reason why I did all this. Because for turkey hunting, I would run a circuit around the property, calling every so often, trying to call birds onto the property from adjoining properties, and gives me that extra tool and ability to do that. Also gives me the way to help study deer movement. Okay, so, you know... You run this loop, you can see what deer coming off the property, what deer coming on, where, things like that, so you could learn. The other reason I did the ring trail, this may be the the most important for most of you listening, is when bucks are cruising in the pre-rut, they're just on the move, or even during the main rut, just on the move, covering ground, looking for does, just cover miles in a day, Typically what'll happen is a buck will push through the brush and they'll find a trail, okay? And that trail goes left or right. Typically they will walk that trail because it's the path of least resistance. The idea being you want to create this circuit around your property so bucks can walk the circuit around your property. Um, you don't want the trail to lead off of the property because then you're just going to funnel them off of the property. Now, bucks aren't going to do laps around the property, but they will follow a trail some of the time a fair distance. And what this can do is 
Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. You're, you're picking up cruising bucks that come onto the property. You've given them a road. They can go left or right. And the idea being they're going to go, they might do a half a loop. They might do three quarters of a loop. But if your stands and your blinds are on that loop, or at least able to see part of that loop, then what you've done is you've created this funnel ability to get bucks that when they come onto your land cruising to pick up this road and they can wind this road around the property until they get to one or more of your tree stands. And I can tell you right now, that seems to have happened fantastically for me this fall fantastically and I'll, I'll get more into that later so like i said i don't think the trail would draw deer to the property but it did focus movement and during the rut and the pre-rut it it gave me a way to influence buck movement which way they're going to go and to try to get them in front of one of my stands and it did do that and it did it well so that was number one, we did the trail. I did the trail, basically with essentially no help. Uh, but the cost was minimal. Uh, some weed whacker string, some gas for the weed whacker oil, you know, or for the weed whacker, some two-stroke oil. That was it, just a few bucks for the summer, and I was able to do that. So we got the trail put in. Now, I should also mention, this property uh, that I'm telling you about is notorious for being a doe-only property. Historically, I have never one time in my life seen a shootable buck on this property during the hunting season, during any hunting season. Not once, not a single deer, not with my eyes, not with my trail cameras. And I've been hunting this property for probably four years before this season. Not once ever, not from a distance, just no sign of a legal buck. I saw one, you know, two and a half point buck. And I mean, two, you know, one, one side was two points. The other was a spike in my life. That was the only male deer I have ever seen on this property. I've taken does for years, had, you know, great success there, but have never seen a buck on this property until this year. And a lot of bucks on the property. And I'll, I'll talk more about that as we go. Um, but really exciting results. Not just volume of does increased, but bucks and lots of them. So, number two. We did the trails. I put in some mock scrapes. And when I say a mock scrape, I'm talking essentially about a licking branch of vine 
what I would do is I'd go and find vines on the property that are naturally there. I'd cut a five-foot section, you know, plus or minus a couple feet. Something that's a good solid half inch or more. Not too thick, but half inch to three quarters of an inch. And then I would hang it from some black rope right across the middle of a trail. And what that does is when deer are walking across that trail, they stop, they sniff the, the, the branch, and I hang it so that the end of it's about belly high, which is right about face level of the average deer walking around, right around your belly button height. So the deer walk around, they will sniff this branch, they lick the branch, the vine, they rub the preorbital glands on their head on it. Bucks just seem to like to just tangle their antlers in it. And then they'll even paw the ground under it and during the rut and pre-rut and make scrapes. Couldn't really care less about the scrapes though. It's all about the scent. The deer stop, they rub their heads on it, they lick it, they rub their faces on it, they rub their antlers on it, they're leaving scent. And it's almost as if the, the deer can just do an inventory of all the other deer in the area. Who's been here? Who's touched this? Who's licked this? On and on. Now, not every deer stops every time they walk by it, but a significant percentage do. Um, you know, if I had to guess, I would say 40% of the deer walking through would stop, sniff, lick, rub their heads, any one of those, sometimes all of them. Um, and, and maybe even more than 40% of the bucks, especially when it's right in the middle of the trail. So you're, you're creating this attraction point. It, they come to sniff it. They might've been walking by. They might've, you know, I don't know that the, 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 that the scrape is drawing deer to the property again, but the deer that are there, they, they focus their movement on it. And when you put it on a trail, it gives them all the more reason to stop there. And of course, every time I set up a mock scrape, I'm setting up a stand, whether it's a tree stand or a blind. And I'm setting up a camera. So every mock scrape has a camera on it. And then every mock scrape also has a tree stand or a blind on it. So that I, the, what's great about the mock scrape is they're stopping, they're licking, they're rubbing. I can get great photos or video of the deer that are interacting with this thing. You know, sometimes a deer just walks right by a trail camera and it doesn't, it doesn't trigger the trail camera. I don't care how good your trail camera is. I don't care what brand you have. Um, you know, all you have, I have sat there and watched deer walk by a trail camera and the trail camera never trigger. I have walked by my own trail cameras, just testing them. And you know, some of them work 50% of the time. Some seem to work 75% of the time. I've never seen one that works 100% of the time. And I've seen many times where, okay, it does trigger, but the deer's already gone. You get a photo of nothing or a tail, or you get a video of the back end of the deer walking past, but you, you just don't have the important information you need. The mock scrape, the licking branch, causes the deer to stop there for a few seconds. And you can get multiple photos right there in the sweet spot, right there in the zone, or like I set it up to do 10 second videos. And you're able to see, okay, is that a buck or a doe? If it is a buck, we've got it just sitting there with his antlers, rubbing his head on this branch for a few seconds. You can tell, okay, what buck is it? How big of a buck is it? 
you know, you you can get that camera pretty close. So you're getting great footage. Whereas if you just have a camera on a trail, you just don't get the quality intel that you do on a mock scrape. And of course the mock scrape causes them to stop and then you can get a shot at them if you have a tree stand. So you have that natural attraction point, that focus point, you're able to get images and then you're also able to get shots. So that works really well. I recommend that for anybody. So I set up a few mock scrapes on this property. The other big thing that I did, and um, you know, there's different philosophies on this, but I decided to go ahead and do it, was I put in a micro plot, really a staging plot. What happened was the power company came through earlier that year or the previous year even, and they cut a, a swath along the power line. You know, whatever it ends up being, 20 foot on either side of the, of the power line. And so they cut this swath in this one area under the bridge. It had just grown up into just trees and garbage. So they come in every so many years and they just clear out, excuse me, they just clear out whatever's under the power lines. So they came through, they just cut this swath, just cut through all the garbage and nastiness with this massive brush hog, just, just you know, just leveled everything to the dirt. And now I was like, okay, now we have an opportunity. Because they've just leveled, you know, it wasn't real big. I, I estimate it to be about a tenth of an acre. Okay, tenth of an acre. This particular area where it was flat enough, open enough, in the right place. Uh, and went, you know, I was able to run my trail right across it. So I had this spot here now that's clear. Tenth of an acre. So I went in. And this was, this was an operation, one man job. I had essentially no equipment, but I went in with a weed whacker, of course, with my swing blade and my pruning shears. Uh, I didn't really need the saw blade and then a rake and just started because uh, just tearing everything out of this. Because when the, the brush hog went through, it just shredded everything. But now you got big chunks of wood and basically mulch everywhere. So I just went through the process of clearing out the wood, clearing out the mulch, clearing out the stones, um, weed whacking the weeds that had grown up just down to the dirt. And I did this in early March, uh, mid-March, right around March 15th or so this year. I was in there weed whacking down to the dirt, exposing dirt, pulling out, you know, everything I could pull out, rocks and wood and branches and stumps and anything I could get out of there. Didn't need to be perfect, just need to get as much bare dirt exposed as possible. So then I went in and I put down some white clover. And white clover, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, a fantastic food item for deer and turkey. It's about 30% protein. It grows fast, it's good ground cover. It can drown out other weeds and other stuff. And most importantly, it comes back every year. It is perennial. I did not want to plant something like wheat or corn or soybeans or anything like that. Buckwheat, anything that I was going to have to replant every year. Because I just don't have the equipment, don't have the manpower, and don't have the desire to invest that kind of energy with a, a weed whacker and a rake every spring. I just don't have it and don't have the 
the desire to use heavy chemicals and all that stuff. Just, I wanted something that I could put in that one would keep the area clear and two would provide an attractant for the deer. So I went in there and I put down a few bags of lime. I did my soil test. Of course, whenever you plant clover, you should do a soil test. So I got my soil test kit from Penn State University for $9 and I sent them my soil test. So I paid nine bucks, got back, found out my pH level, said I needed to add some lime. So the amount of lime you're supposed to add for the minimal uh, uh, portion that they wanted me to add is 2,000 pounds an acre, which sounds impossible if, if you don't have equipment, if you don't have a tractor, if you don't have tools, if you don't have wheelbarrows. 2,000 pounds an acre just sounds like, well, you know, it's, it's over, checkmate, you know, just this mission has failed or we're just going to go without it. Well, 2,000 pounds is a lot, but I'm doing a tenth of an acre. So 2,000 pounds for a whole acre, a tenth of that, that's 200 pounds for a tenth of an acre, comes in 50-pound bags. That's four bags. It cost $4 a bag. It was $16. I got a, uh, a, a salt spreader that you use on your driveway, you know, like a $20 one. And I literally put down 200 pounds of lime on this tenth of an acre in, I don't know, not even 15 minutes. It was super easy. Once I got the ground cleared, which was a mission, an operation, it was a lot of work, a lot of sweat. Once I got that cleared, putting on the lime took 15 minutes and less than $20. No reason not to do that if it's going to impact you know, how well the thing grows. So then I got my white clover seed and I put that down. That was a 10 minute operation on a 10th of an acre. I got, I bought a, uh, a little bag. I don't know what it was, five pounds maybe. Supposed to be enough seed for half an acre. You know, I paid, uh, I got the good stuff. I got the Imperial white tail clover, the good stuff. They're not a sponsor, though they're welcome to be. We've got no sponsors. Um, you know, everything that I recommend is based on my experience and what I really believe. Uh, I've actually turned sponsors down for this channel just because I'm like, you know what? It's not a good fit. I'd have to force myself to use that piece of gear. It's just not something that I'm going to do. It's not something that I'm going to use. It's not something I'm just going to promote to you guys just because they're going to pay me a few bucks. I was like, no, I, I would, I would take sponsors for real stuff that I really believe in already, but not gonna, not gonna take sponsors for things that just, I don't believe in it. I don't use it. I don't want to use it. I don't have a use for it. And I'm going to pretend I'm going to use it. I'm like, no, that's just not the way this thing works. Um, and that doesn't help you guys in the long run. It just, and you just end up with convoluted information. But so anyway, I got the Imperial Whitetail Clover, talked directly with the company, got some insight. They were real good people to work with. Spent 30 bucks for a bag of seed, for enough seed to do half an acre. You might think that's a lot of money for seed. Yes, yes it is. I think they have the most expensive clover money can buy. But I thought, you know what? I'm doing a 10th of an acre. I'm doing it by hand. I'm out here with a weed whacker and a rake. I want to use the absolute best seed I can possibly use to give this, this operation the best chance it can possibly have to succeed. 
right? I was like, okay, why, why go through days of work and then skimp out and try to save a couple dollars per pound of seed? Like I said, as a half pound bag of seed, or as a five pound bag of seed, or whatever the pounds were to do a half acre, I'm only doing a tenth of an acre. So really, I bought enough seed to do five times more plot than I really needed. So if you divide the money, it was like $6 for the amount of seed that I needed to do this area. Now, of course, you know, I put down the seed, I put it down heavy and I put it down multiple times. I seed, I overseeded it. I threw it down. Um, I put down the, I put down the, the lime, I put down the seed and then I came back two weeks later. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And I saw, how's it growing? Water had washed some of the seed away before it could take root. So I put down more seed there. And then I overseeded the areas that I already had sprouts on. And then I came back a few weeks after that. Did the same process again. Overseeded some areas. Put some more down where water had washed it away. So I used way more seed than I needed to. Okay, way more seed. But this area is kind of, there's some grade to it. So water runs down it. And if there's nothing there, you're just getting erosion. And I really, we had a really wet winter, a really wet spring this year. We had a horrible summer, dry, drought-written summer. But we had a lot of rain in the spring, so just washing my seed away. So I probably did three plantings, and then they even did some extra a fourth time, just getting some extra seed down there on the, you know, on this plot. So I used an entire bag of seed easily and they even bought another one halfway through the summer. I thought I'm going to do some seeding in the fall. So I brought some, I bought another bag in the summertime. You know, of course I went overboard and of course, because this was a hillside, I ended up needing more because of, you know, water washing it away, but I bought more than I needed. So I put that down. I even said, you know what, let's go all out. Let's go all out. Let's get fertilizer for this stuff because the fertilizer that you need is, uh, I think they want you to get something with as little nitrogen as possible and then balanced of the other two. So I ended up getting like a 10, 20, 20. They say zero 20, 20 is the best, but nobody really makes a zero 20, 20. Uh, so 10, 20, 20 is what I was able to get. And I bought, you know, it was like a 20 pound bag, which is enough to cover like should be three years worth. If I fertilize every year, it should probably last me three years, maybe more. And I was like, eh, it was like 15 bucks. I was like, okay, 15 bucks for three to five years worth of fertilizer. 
you know, at this point, you put so much work into this little tenth of an acre. I was like, yeah, fine. Give it to me. I'll buy it. So I got that, put the fertilizer down. Again, we had a really dry summer. So in the spring, you know, it all sprouted. It started coming up. Of course, it came up in waves because I planted it in waves. We got some weeds in there. We got some grass in there. But for the most part, the, the clover did good. We didn't really have the right weather conditions or the right timing for me to do any spraying. And they make sprays that will kill grass and will kill weeds and not harm clover and stuff like that. And they're cheap, they're cost effective, and you don't need a lot of them, especially for a tenth of an acre. Um, but the weather just wasn't, did not cooperate at all this summer. It was a terrible summer for trying to plant anything. Um, at times it didn't look like the clover was gonna make it. We went maybe a month, two months with no rain. Like it was really dry. It, I was like, okay, this is a failure. I shouldn't, of course you couldn't have seen a drought coming, but you're like, I've, I've you know, this whole thing's a failure. I lost it all, but it, it pulled through. The clover pulled through. Come the end of August, we started to get a little bit more rain, a little bit more moisture. It started really growing. Um, you know, they say the clover will flower its first year and all that midsummer, early summer. No, not, not this year. I don't, I saw maybe a few flowers in September and that was it. So it was a bad year for growing clover. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because even though it was such a bad year for my micro plot, for my staging plot, for my clover, this thing worked really, really really well. Okay, so I put a camera, of course, on a mock scrape in the middle of the clover patch, right? Because why wouldn't you? And of course, I put a hunting blind uh, up above the corner of the clover patch looking down on it within crossbow range and rifle range so I could hunt that mock scrape in that clover patch, which is not always the best plan, but I had some altitude and I just literally had nowhere else I could put a tree stand. Uh, but the photos and the video that I got on this clover patch, even though it was a terrible growing season, even though it didn't grow half as much as it should have grown, was spectacular. I was amazed, just constant, all summer long. I mean, deer, non-stop, does, bucks, fawns, big bucks, little bucks, but does and bucks at the same time. Bachelor groups of bucks. Even a few turkeys. Just on this plot all summer long. At one point I was like, they're just going to eat it down to the ground. They're just going to eat it down to the ground. And there's going to be nothing left. But they were, I mean, they were on top of this place. They were just every day almost guaranteed. And, you know, I would, I would have a week's where I'd get 200 videos in a week. You know? Just, and of course, you know, the trail camera is only on that little spot and it's not picking up everything that happens. It's only getting a portion of them. And I've got a good camera too, but that's, I put the good camera on the plot, but you know, they're still not foolproof. And, uh, you know, all summer long, amazing. Now you would expect this, right? This is, this is the thing you expect here. Well, yeah, you got a lot more deer there, but the camera that was my test camera was not on the food plot. It was 300 yards away, something like that. 300 yards away 
on a trail, which of course I ended up cutting and routing to go as part of the circle around the property, that trail hits this food plot. So, you know, if you walk this trail all the way around the property, eventually, no matter which way you go, you're going to hit the food plot. Well, on the farther end of the property, on the other opposite side of the property, you know, I've had a tree stand there for years. So I cut this trail to run in front of that tree stand. And that's where I have this camera. And the number of deer that walk past that camera 300 yards away was 660% more than the year before in the same time period. 660% more. Okay, now I want to get to the really exciting part. So, you know, I told you guys, I've never seen a buck on this property during the hunting season. Never seen one with my own eyes. I never shot a buck on this property. Uh, you never had even one on a trail camera during the hunting season. So starting in the summertime, uh, I at one point had a running count of seven to nine different bucks that were on this property constantly. And I say seven to nine because I couldn't be entirely sure if some of them were the same buck or not because the antlers grow so fast in the summer. You know, in two weeks, they can be several inches longer, more points. You know, it's hard to hard to keep tabs until they, they you know, you hit August and they pretty much reach about how big they're going to get. But I had almost 10 bucks that I named them. I have na- I got names on the file names that were legal shootable bucks. Ten legal shootable bucks. Now I'm I'm overemphasizing that number now because later more bucks began showing up on trail cameras after the summer. So at the end of the day, I've got about ten bucks that have been using this property that are showing up on the trail camera 300 yards away in front of the tree stand that's never seen a buck before. And I mean, shootables, you know, in in, in our county, it's got to be three up on one side, not including the brow tine. So basically, you're talking about a six to an eight point. If there is no brow tine, it's a six point. If there is a brow tine, it's an eight point. Ten. And, you know, some of them are, are hanging out in groups of three or four, even at the same time. And all, you know, the, a good range of bucks. So we had smaller ones. They're just barely shootable. Probably wouldn't have shot them, right? But they were legal. You had bigger ones. You had ones that were really nice shooters. And then I had two mature bucks. Two mature bucks. What's a mature buck? A mature buck is a buck that has hit that four-year-old stride and they have now entered into the mature phase of their life where they're just now starting to get the full-size antler potential that they could reach, right? So I've got, I had two bucks that I estimated at four years old. Never seen a four-year-old buck. The one was a 10-point, not a huge 10-point. Next year, if he survived the season, he's going to be a huge 10 point. The other one was a big eight point, a really nice eight point. Um, you know, just in a huge body. You, know, you got that sagging tummy. You got those big shoulders, just big animal. And then several other nice shooters and then some smaller shooters. And these bucks, 
Now, of course, you know, you've got habitat shift that happens in the fall, right? You, you've got, you know, all the deer play nice in the summer. They're, they're not that much on guard. They're not that wary. They all play nice. Um, and then once you get towards the fall and the hunting season, testosterone starts kicking in, cover starts to die, food sources die and change. And, you know, bucks that are in one area or all deer that are in one area may leave and go to another area. This property is one of those properties. Okay. In the summertime, a lot of deer on it. Now, way more deer this year than ever before. A lot of deer on it. And then come the, come the, come October, right around October, they just kind of disappear. Mid-October, somewhere around there, they just sort of disappear and dry up. The numbers just fall off drastically. You know, if you, I was getting 150 to 200 trail camera photos a week, I might be getting 15 to 20 trail cameras, photos a week. It just falls off. Why? Because the cover on this property dies with the frost. A lot of the ground cover dies with the frost. And uh, I'm assuming there's other food sources within these deer's range that are more promising that time of year. And, and they just go. Not all the deer disappear, but a lot of them. So by the time you make it to the rut, in the pre-rut, there are very few deer around. And once you make it to rifle season, I mean, I've hunted you know, days in rifle season and never seen a deer. But in the mid in the early season, you had good opportunities. Well, this year, there were bucks there. I mean, in mass in the early season. In mass in the early season. Just, it seems like every day, there are bucks at, in both of these areas, both of my main trail camera areas, by both stands. Once I got into towards October, of course, everything started dropping off. But interestingly, as we got to the pre-rut, towards the end of October, a lot of bucks. I mean, multiple shooters just cruising, just on the move and stayed there through the end of the rut. Right up until November 20th is it's like somebody turned off the lights on the on the deer season. Just there were bucks on that property, you know, regularly, consistently, not, you know, not at every trail camera every day, but consistently on that property right until the 20th of November. And then after that, eh, there just, there just wasn't much activity. Now I took my buck October 10th or so, somewhere around there. So, of course, I'm sitting in my blind, overlooking the, the clover field at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. This buck walks out. I knew it was a shooter immediately. I had my criteria. I knew in advance how big I was looking to get, which was just basically a, anything that was a little bigger than the one I had from the year before. And this guy walked out, and I knew immediately he was a shooter. And I just drew and shot, you know, without just automatically, on autopilot, Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. 
make a statement, or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Took it. It was a good buck. He's a, a, I'd call him a smaller eight-point, but a nice eight-point. Nice, nice spread on it. Um, you know, nice deer. Very nice deer for the area. Or not a whole lot of deer year to year in this area that are that are better than that one. Wasn't one of the mature bucks that I had that I'd seen. This so I, I I it was probably my fourth sit. This guy walked out. I was like, that's a keeper. So I took him. Well, I found um literally I mean I pulled my trail camera my trail camera cards after I shot him. And I found that I guess it was the day before or two days before I shot him. That buck that I shot was in a sparring match on trail camera video with one of the mature bucks, the big eight point. And it was unbelievable how big the big eight point was compared to the eight point that I had. Some people say, well, an eight point's an eight point. Yeah, well, no. This mature buck, his antlers were twice the size. His body mass was significantly larger. He just pushed around the nice buck that I took. Just pushed him around. I had like four or five videos of them just duking it out. Not hard and violent, but I mean pushing each other around. And it just goes to show like I, I couldn't I couldn't really fathom it. I couldn't really grasp it. I couldn't really tell the difference until, you know, I had taken this deer. I had drug it out of the woods. I knew how heavy it was. I knew how big it was. I knew how strong it was. I knew how nice the antlers were. And then to see it after that on camera with another buck that dwarfed it, I was like, wow. Now, part of me is like, oh man, I wish I would have been there to take that buck. And yeah, well, you can't think that way. You just can't because had you been there, it might not have been there, right? You might have spooked it. Who knows what happens? Uh, like I say, a buck in the freezer is worth two larger bucks in the woods. That's just the way that it is. But it goes to show how big a mature deer, you know, how much larger they can be. And then how, you know, but what I'm getting to is this property is holding these kind of deer during the early archery season and through the rut. So I was out another day in early November. Um, you know, it was, it was right at the beginning of the rut. You know, I, I don't know, 20% of the way into the rut, whatever. But it was, it was in the prime rut time. I scheduled the day off earlier in the year because it was prime rut time. So I'm out there hunting does, right? Hunting does in my blind. While I'm sitting there, the king of the forest walks out. The, the nice 10 point monster body just pops right out on the trail that I'd cut. Stops at my licking branch, licks it, rubs his head, rubs his antlers. I got the trail camera video of this happening. I'm sitting there watching it, but it's on trail camera because the trail camera's on the mock scrape. And I'm just sitting there, I'm just amazed, like, wow. You know, part of me's like, I wish I wouldn't have shot the deer that I shot so I could take this one. But of course, you never know if there's going to be another opportunity, let alone one like this. But I, I, you know, saw that deer early rut, just majestic awesome animal. It is my greatest hope that it survived the hunting season. 
and just watched it and then it trotted off and or later later in that day i saw another shootable buck walk through and i'm sitting here like like the cat that got the canary you know like what did i do i put in some trails i put in some mock scrapes i put in a, a clover patch a tenth of an acre of clover and this property was transformed now uh, you, there are some things to keep in mind is what are your neighbors doing, right? What, How high is the bar in order to compete for deer's attention? Well, in this location, the neighbors were doing nothing. There's nothing that the neighbors were doing that I could see of any note or merit. So a clover patch of a tenth of an acre is the excitement, right? As the excitement for the deer. It's, it's the most exciting thing going on is this little clover patch. So there, there wasn't like neighbors had all these big soybean fields and all this stuff that's just drawn deer. No, it was a low bar. So just doing something as small as some trails and some mock scrapes and some clover, which is going to grow back next year, right? I don't have to go in there and go through this whole process again. I might overseed it a little in the springtime if there's any thin areas. Um... I might put down some more, uh, some more lime. Might put down some more fertilizer. Might try a little bit of weed control. I mean, just just dollars. I mean, I just dollars, just in maintenance and very little energy and effort and work. But I mean, just that little bit on a property with little competition became an early season deer hunting, uh, just masterpiece. When I was out opening day of archery, uh, September 19th or so, I could have shot, I don't know, 10 does before, before lunch. 10 does. Now, I left, at, I left at noon. Should have stayed all day because in the evening, the bucks were around on that micro plot, which, you know, maybe a bit of a mistake. But, I mean, the first few days I was out there, does everywhere and bucks they just weren't at the same place that i was at the same time i was doing a lot of morning hunting they tended to be there in the evenings and then i started doing some evening hunts and there they were right took one home could have taken more home but um now i want to mention though come rifle season this was a cold property by the end of november the deer were done. They were. They had moved on somewhere else. The clover was no longer holding them. The cover was gone. The snow had just knocked down everything. You just had woods with jaggers you could see through, which is no good for anybody or anything. So this is not a late season property. This this strategy. This is a this is an early season strategy and a rut strategy. This is what was what happened here, which is exactly perfect for me, which works really good and did work really well. And I'm hoping it's going to work even better next year. But this was an early season strategy because this property is just not a good late season property. Are there things I could do to make it a better late season property? Yes, of course there are. I could work on putting in switchgrass. I could work on some hinge cuts. To make some more cover, I could put in, um, you know, just work on clearing some areas for, for you know, regeneration and regrowth and thickness and things like that. 
But all that takes money, it takes energy, it takes equipment, it takes stuff that's beyond what I have, and maybe beyond what the property owners are are okay with doing. Um, but here's the thing. For me, it doesn't matter. Because I just hunt the early season and the rut. I don't need to be there in November and December. You know, I just, it's just not that critical. Um, you know, I, it's just, it's, if I can have this phenomenal early season and ruts location, then it doesn't really matter that much what's going on come rifle season because I'm a deer hunter. I'm not a tool hunter, right? I don't care if I'm hunting with a bow or a rifle. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. You know, a rifle is maybe a little easier. You can shoot a little further without having to worry about arrow drop. But nowhere that I hunt can I even see 100 yards, let alone shoot that far. There's very few places that I can shoot outside of crossbow range. And from what my stand locations, you know, very few can you even see more than 50 yards. Even the, the, the food plot, the end... From my spot to the end of the clover patch is still only about 45 yards, which is just sort of barely inside crossbow range. But I'm like, you know, it doesn't really matter. So, you know, that's how I've defined the hunt, right? I'm after the deer. The hunt is the hunt. The tool is not that important. You know, I don't really care what the tool is. So if I can be there in the early season and during the rut, then... You know, I just use the tools that let me hunt during that time because that's that's when the opportunity is. Is it better to hunt during the rifle season? I don't see how. I don't see how it's better. You know, if you're still hunting on a lot of land and you can walk and shoot deer and have fun, then awesome. I don't have that kind of land. If I did, I might do that. But what are the opportunities that I have... You know, I'm just been working on making the most of them. And that's what I've been trying to help you guys with is just make the most of the opportunities that you have. I'm not trying to talk anybody into doing this kind of a strategy. I'm just giving you more tools to add to your toolbox to, to optimize and make the most use of the opportunities that you have so that you can have the best hunt that you're able to have within the opportunities and the places you can hunt. So I hope this has been helpful for you guys. Please head to the website, newhuntersguide.com. Check out the show notes. Send me a message. You know, how's this helping you? Is this good content? You know, is it, is it, is it something that's, in, you know, that's encouraging you, strengthening, enabling, equipping you? Or, you know, are these episodes helpful? What could I do to, to improve? What would you like to hear episodes about? And also, please do head to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and leave me a review. Uh, I do not need the positive reinforcement. I really don't care, but there's no better way to get this podcast in front of more people than by leaving a five-star Apple iTunes review with a comment because that affects the algorithm in iTunes, in Apple Podcasts, which affects where do we show up when people do searches, what episodes show up when, when people are looking for certain topics, and that's the number one way to reach more people with this podcast, to help more new hunters get started, and to help equip more people that are breaking into new areas of hunting. So I you know, want to encourage you, ask you to do that. I'd love to hear from you. 
Love to hear your stories. Love to hear about the deer that you took this past season and any game that you've been taking and working on. So till next time, God bless you guys and go get them in the woods. think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.